So often, the greatest things keeping us from living the life God has for us is us. Hi, this is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at West Valley Christian Church. When we see how God has set us free as individuals in the church, we are unleashed in a rich, powerful, and full life with Him. We are all given a choice. Continue to pursue a life playing it safe or live a life unleashed. In this series, we'll take a look at the lives that had the same choice, safe or unleashed, faith or fear. What did they choose? What will you choose? We hope you enjoy. Good to see you all. I want to thank Gracie for singing that song. She shared it in both services. What a great song. I wish I sounded that good when I'm nervous. So I got to warn you guys, I'm a little grumpy today. And I know what some of you are saying, that, that's no different than any other Sunday. But anyway, today's October what? 23rd? Yesterday was October 22nd. Let me tell you something about this pastor. On Saturday nights, while you guys are out carousing and having a good time, I go to bed early. I like to be in bed early so I get a good night's sleep so I can be here and do my best for the Lord. All right? And so last night, it's a typical Saturday night before I'm preaching. It's like 10 o'clock, and I'm walking into my bedroom to go to sleep. And normally, because I have such a clear conscience, I go to fall asleep very quickly. But I was horrified as I walked into my bedroom last night, because it's October 22nd, and my wife had the Hallmark Channel on, and there was a Christmas movie on. (laughs) If I Only Had Christmas was the title of this movie that was on. And as I'm trying to go to sleep, that's all I can hear is, is, is this movie about Christmas and, and some company that's got a charity. And I... <sighs> took a while to go to sleep last night. And then I, as I was trying to go to sleep, I was thinking about today's sermon. And uh, we don't have a slide that says the, the, the title of the sermon. I don't even normally pay attention to the titles. Okay, because if you don't know this, Pastor Rob decides the sermons, he picks the titles. Sometimes the titles have nothing to do with the sermon, okay? And so, so if you all have a bulletin, someone just yell out what the name of the sermon is today. Full of it. Okay, so my wife got a call from someone in the church this week, says, I can't wait to hear John talk about being full of it. Not very nice. So anyway... I'm going to try to power through. I'm feeling better. Actually, I confess that I told all this at the first service, and I felt better, and now I feel even better, better, okay? So several years ago, there was this guy on Twitter. He did a Twitter survey, and he asked people to share about different things that had caused fights and even splits in churches that they had attended, and he compiled 25 things uh, that people sent in, and for the sake of time, I narrowed it down to 15 that I thought were real doozies. And these are in no particular order. I'll let you know when we're at my favorites, okay? Uh, But these are 15 things, legitimate things that churches have fought over and some have even split because of. Number one, that an argument about over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Okay, I prefer that our worship leader has no beard, but that's just me, okay? (laughs) I was waiting for you to think for you guys to figure out who was the worship leader today, but okay, anyway. But if she wants to have one, hey, whatever, you know. (laughs) Number two, okay, now this one, the the way this one got decided will really tell you the direction of the church. They fought over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Okay? Number three, 
a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter, and they decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. Like, could you imagine seeing that? You know, just a couple of guys. Now, we don't have deacons here, but I was thinking, you know, like, you know, Gary, uh, Chuck Carter and maybe Ed Watkins in the parking lot getting ready to duke it out with each other. Okay. Uh, number four, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Okay. So we have a clock in our worship center. We have a TV there. And matter of fact, they're so nice. The, the, the sound people are so nice. They give us a countdown. Okay. For how long the sermon should last. Okay. One of us pays attention to that. The other one doesn't. Okay, so for those of you that struggle with paying attention, you just want to know how long it's going to last, go ahead, look over your shoulder and look at that TV, but know that if I catch you, I'm going to say something, okay? So good Doug, I dare you, okay? Because I'll be looking over here and I'll see Doug's head turn. I'm like, Doug Hiller just looked at the clock, everybody. So anyway, when, we were, when I was a kid and I went to church, one of the preachers was a guy named Tom Morris. He always had a watch on his hand. And when he would preach, he would set it right here on the edge of the pulpit. We had a bigger pulpit back then. And one time he says, well, you guys do know what me doing that means, don't you? And then he goes, it means absolutely nothing. Okay, he was going to preach until he was done. He didn't care what time it was. So anyways, they had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Okay, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Because like either one of them was correct. Okay, uh, petition to have all church staff clean shaven. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. This, this is a doozy. <clears throat> a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. Now, we've taken care of this at West Valley because we just serve you the worst grape juice in the history of the world. <laughs> if you've ever taken communion here, on, a, on any given Sunday when I take communion, I take it and I go, like that. Okay, so if you happen to be one of those persons that only wants grape juice, if you take our grape juice, you'll be begging for the cran grape, okay? It's bad, okay? Uh, next one, business meeting argument about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve that one. Uh, two different churches report fights over the type of coffee that they used. Okay, this is another one of my doozies, I thought. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal, Deviled eggs, they fought over that, okay? I kind of like that one. An argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. Oh, this, one, this one's great too. A disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Okay, potluck over pot blessing. Now, the little commentary from the guy who compiled this list, he says, I get it. The concept of luck contradicts the theology of a sovereign God. This is a very serious issue. Good luck trying to resolve it church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. And an argument over whether the fake, dusty plants should be removed from the podium. And so I think we can all agree there's a terrible reasons to fight, terrible reasons to argue, terrible, terrible reasons for churches to split. Uh, but the reason I went through that is today, the passage we're going to eventually get to deals with what I would say is the first cause or the first attempt did cause a division in the church, okay? And so up until chapter, Acts chapter 6, everything we read is about the church being united, the church being together. And so I want us to read a couple of passages. I'm going to read them for you. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 47, or 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
I don't have time to spend too much time on this, but let me tell you, if you ever want to know what it is to be a Christian and how to be a Christian and how every church ought to look, if we just did those four things, how awesome would every church be? Okay, If we just devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer, really, that's it. Everything else comes back to those four things. But let's move on. That's not what we're preaching about today. So says, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. It doesn't mean they all liked the same things. It doesn't mean they all looked the same. It just means that the most important thing, which was Christ, they all had that in common. And it's not a mistake that at the end, it says that the Lord was adding daily to those who were being saved. When we're committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer, when we're committed to having everything in common and keeping Christ is that thing that holds us together, that's when the, the church can really thrive. And people are going to come to know the Lord on a daily basis. In Acts chapter 4, there's another similar passage to that one we just read. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And so what did they have in common? What did they have there? They were, they were one in heart, one in mind. They were on the same page. And so we read those passages in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And unfortunately, just a short little time later in Acts chapter 6, we come across the first challenge to that unity. And one of the things that's most important about Acts chapter 2 and 4 and that unity is this, this, this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. If you were to go back and read John 15, 16, and 17, Jesus is praying for, for the believers. He's praying for the disciples. He's praying for believers that are going to come later on. And one of the most important things that he prays for is he prays for our unity. And so in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see that. And in Acts chapter 6, we come across the first thing that's going to challenge that unity. Uh, you know, so when we started this series... We actually started a series called Unleashed at the beginning of the year, and we talked about some of the heroes of the faith, and we talked about some of the big-name people, okay? This second go-around, we've talked about some of the other people that are, that are kind of towards the end, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, maybe you've wondered, like, how did those guys end up in Hebrews chapter 11? Okay, like, like Hebrews chapter 11, this, this great chapter about faith, how did they end up in there? I'm still left wondering how Barack and Samson ended up on that list. I'm assuming, I mean, Barack, we only have one, one chapter in the Old Testament on him. I'm assuming there are other things that he did in his life that we don't know about, and that's how we ended up in Hebrews chapter 11. But today, I want to read to you a different passage. It doesn't even name any names. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 35, says, Women received back their dead, raised to life, 
There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Honestly, I don't even know what verse 35 means. Okay, if you want to know what that even means and why they would do that, see Pastor Rob after the service, okay? I don't want to deal with that one. It says, some faced jeers and flog and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin. It's in goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These unnamed people, these people of such great faith, suffered all of this because of their great faith. Like you would think they had great faith and only good things happened to them. But in Hebrews chapter 11, they have this great faith and horrible things are happening to them. And so one person that fits description, this description is the guy that's in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Stephen. Spoiler alert. He dies. He's death by stoning. Okay? So if you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, it starts in verse 1. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said... It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so the problem is this. In the church at that time, they would take up an offering to help the widows. And at the time, the whole church, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Acts chapter 6, the whole church is Jewish. If you're a Gentile, you're not in the church yet. And so the whole church is Jewish. But inside Judaism, there were, there were a couple of little factions. So there were some Jews who had lived in Palestine the whole time, and they still spoke Aramaic. And then there were other Jews who had kind of, I don't want to say they had given into their culture, but they were, more, they were more like Greeks. And so they most likely didn't even speak Aramaic, but they spoke Greek. And so they would take this offering to help the widows, and the Greek-speaking widows, people were complaining that they weren't being taken care of like the Hebraic widows were. And so they bring this to the apostles. This is the first challenge to the unity that we've read about in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And I love, and I, we don't have the whole story. Maybe, maybe they did more than this, but I love how the apostles, they don't even deal with it. Okay? They don't even like, well, let's hold a committee and find out if this is true. They're like, nope. Let's just fix it. Let's just fix it. Find seven men that you can trust that are good men, put them in charge of it, make sure this doesn't happen anymore. I'm not an expert in names, but several different books that I've read over the years have talked about how all seven of these names have something in common. None of them are Jewish. They're all Greek names. Okay? So my impression is when they solved this problem, it was the Grecian Jews' widows that were, they were worried about getting mis mistreated or not taken care of. They found seven guys with Greek names and said, you guys take care of this problem. Okay? I don't know. You may not find that interesting. I find it interesting. Okay, and so that's what it says, though. 
And so one of the things it says about Stephen is this. Maybe, hopefully you caught it. It says that he is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think for a second. If we were to ask the people that know you, if we were to ask the people that are closest to you, not the people you sit next to in church, because you all look good when you're here at church. You're all on your, oh wait, most of you are on your best behavior when you're here at church, okay? So now isn't the, but, but the people that really know you, how would they describe you? What would they say about you? Because I think it's incredible what this verse says about Stephen. It says that he's a man full of faith. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. Man, I would love for that to be what people say about me. I would love for that to be what people say about you. So Stephen is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 8 says, Now Stephen, more descriptions here, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogues of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded, got to get that word persuaded out. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. And so previously we'd heard that he's a man full of faith and a man full of the Holy Spirit, and now we're told that he's a man full of God's grace, that he's a man full of power. And this is the first time we hear of anybody other than Jesus or the apostles performing any kind of miracles or signs or anything like that. Stephen, first time we hear about anybody like that first time. He sounds incredible. He sounds like an example for us. And you would think that a person who is a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of God's grace and power would receive nothing but blessings and good things in his life. And yet that is not how they respond to him in this section that we read. Instead of receiving blessings, he receives criticism. He receives their anger. And as we read through the life of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, in many ways it reminds me of the, of the life of Jesus. He follows a very similar path to the life of Jesus. He's a follower of Christ, and he's treated as such. And so we don't have time to read all of Acts chapter 7, but in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is standing there before the Sanhedrin, and he gives his people a history lesson. Okay, so in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1 and going on, he looks at them and he gives them a history lesson. And so he talks about Abraham and he talks about Joseph and how Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, but God had a plan. He talks about Moses and how their ancestors were unwilling to obey Moses. These aren't words that of someone who's trying to make friends. But then if you go all the way to verse 51, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 
He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Man, this isn't a guy who's sitting there in front of this crowd afraid and begging for his life. Like, that's not as offensive, maybe in your ears, as it would have been to theirs in that moment. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. He says, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Man, like I said before, he isn't trying to win any friends. He isn't trying to gain anything in a popularity contest. And so then it continues in verse, it continues in verse 54. It says, when they heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him... Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit, becomes the first martyr in the church. Becomes the first person besides Jesus to die for the Christian faith. And so what I want to remind us of, Pastor Rob last week mentioned this, and I want to say this again. God wants to do extraordinary people through ordinary people. Okay? God wants to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. But I think like Stephen here, but he wants to do it through people who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean to be full of faith? Now, when I was a kid and I went to church here, we sang a song that was called Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay? I did you all a favor by not singing it, okay? But I think that's what it comes down to when it talks about being full of faith. We're trusting in God, and we're being obedient to Him. That's what it means to be full of faith. It's trusting in Him even when things don't make sense. It's trusting in Him even when we're doing everything right or everything the way God wants us to, and the people around us still don't like it. And the people hate us. And the people are saying, no, no, you're wrong. Okay? I want you to think about this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without faith, it's hard to please God. It doesn't say without faith, it's difficult to please God. Or, or without faith, it's unlikely to please God. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay? Like without faith, we cannot please God. But secondly, a really popular verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, in my version of that, it says, Acknowledge him. Some say, In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Okay, what a great verse. But when you think about it, like I'm standing right in the middle of the church. There's a path right here. If I need to get away from you guys, I'm going actually that way. But um, there's a path straight down in front of me, okay? The idea of this verse is the idea that when we trust in him, he's going to straighten our path. So what that means is sometimes in life, as we're trusting in him, the road is curvy. 
The road is windy. Sometimes you can't see around the next corner, and our job is still to trust in him even when we're on the road like that. It's kind of like if you've ever been on the 405 and you're coming to the 101. Okay, now normally you're only going two miles an hour, so this isn't an issue. But if you're ever doing it when there isn't traffic, <coughs> excuse me, you come through the 405 and you have to swerve like this and go under a tunnel and you can't see what's on the other side. And most of the time there's cars not moving. So some of you probably go through there blazing, okay? I go through there very cautiously because I don't know what's coming around the corner, Okay? But in this, in this verse, it's telling us to trust in the Lord. Even when we're coming around those corners and we can't see, we need to trust that he knows what's going on. Okay? We need to trust in him even when we don't know what's going on, and especially when we don't know what's going on and we don't know what's next. Okay? The second thing I noticed about Stephen in here is, you know what? Sometimes serving Christ is also going to lead to suffering for Christ. Like, like somewhere along the way, people started telling other people that when you come to follow Christ, everything's going to be easy. Like when you come to follow Christ, everything is going to be okay. Like there are people out there that will tell you, hey man, Jesus wants you healthy and wealthy. And the truth is God, I mean, I don't think God minds if you're healthy or if you're wealthy. But he doesn't promise either one of those things to any of us. And so Stephen here is doing all the right things. And yet he doesn't end up healthy and wealthy. Stephen is doing all the right things. He is full of faith. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of God's power, and he's put to death for it. And, and so sometimes when we're trying to do what's right, and we're still facing obstacles, sometimes I think we as Christians go, God, why are you letting this happen? Or, or why, why is this happening? Why have you abandoned me? And most of I think, no, no, God is right there with us. God is right there with us as we go through those things because he doesn't ever promise us that we're not going to go through difficulty. Like if we've ever read the Bible, okay, we know the words of Jesus. We know the words of Paul. We know the words of Peter and what they've said life is going to be like. In John chapter 15 that I mentioned earlier, as he's praying, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We shouldn't be surprised when the world doesn't like what we have to say. We shouldn't be shocked when the morals and values that we as a church talk about that come from God's word is not what people out there are supporting. They didn't listen to Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. Shouldn't shock us. It says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So Jesus is pretty clear. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of us, most of us, a couple of us, all of us, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul's on the same page with Jesus. And then Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal 
that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Okay, it's interesting they put meddler in the same category as those people, but okay. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. Now, I think one of the interesting things about, as I read Peter here, is I think he's kind of saying, listen, don't be surprised when you suffer, but also don't give the, re- the world a reason. Like sometimes as a church, people don't like us and they have good reason to because we as Christians make mistakes and we've done things that are wrong and we don't exactly always represent Christ the way that we should. And so we need to be reminded where also the scripture teaches us that we are to share our faith with people with gentleness and respect. So Jesus told us we'd suffer. Paul says we'd suffer. Peter says we'd suffer. Stephen is an example of that suffering. Another thing I want to mention about Stephen is, you know, sometimes when you're sharing the gospel, people just aren't going to listen. Like, you may know all the right words. You may have all the right words. You think you've nailed it, and they're still going to walk away, and they're still going to be angry at you. And I want you to take heart in that moment. Because, you know, not only did Stephen have all the right words and get put to death for it, there were people that actually listened and heard Jesus speak and walked away. So we shouldn't be surprised when we try to share our faith with people and they don't want to listen to us. So I'd say Stephen, even though he's not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, he belongs right there with all those people in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, whenever I'm asked to share at a funeral, there's a poem that I read. Um, And it doesn't matter if the person's young or old, rich or poor, if they've got a lot of family, if a few people are going to be there. I read this poem every single time, and it's entitled The Dash. It says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came her date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth, And now only those who loved her know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the phone, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just learn to slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogies being read, with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? So at Stephen's funeral, if they had a funeral for him, what would they have said about him? They would have said that Stephen was a man full of faith. They would have said that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. They would have said that he was a man full of God's grace and full of God's power. And as I read those chapters, I feel like they would have said that Stephen was a man of integrity, that Stephen was a man of great courage. And these things were true in Stephen's life. 
And, and most importantly for us today is God is calling you and I to be those people like that today. Okay? So as we think about Stephen, think about our own lives. What would people say about you? Are you full of faith? Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Are you full of God's grace and God's power? If not, why not? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. I thank you for the example of not just Stephen, but really all the heroes of faith in the Bible. Lord, I thank you not only for his positive example of how he lived, I thank you, Lord, for his staying faithful to the very end, even as he suffered. Thank you for his, even towards the end, trying to draw people to Christ. Lord, I pray for the people of our congregation here, Lord. I pray that you would help each one of us to be people that are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, not just us, I pray for the church next door, that the people in their church would be people that are full of faith and people of the Holy Spirit. I pray for the churches that are down the street and around the way. Lord, I pray that they would be people of faith and people of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that together we could make a difference in this valley for you and make a difference in the world because we're full of faith and full of your spirit. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at wvcch.org or you can join us live in one of our Sunday services. Have a great day.